The grace and peace to you. Good morning. Uh, I'm delighted once again to be here uh, to share this time with uh, Pastor Chuck and uh, uh, Gladiel. Yeah, I'll be, I, I, I said I was going to be nice this trip all the time. They, they know what your name is. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you all probably don't know what I call her, do you? You don't? Would you like to know? How many of you would like to know? You'd like to know. Uh, you know, people who are more senior than I, my, my parents taught me great respect. And we had the concept in our neighborhood where everybody else enforced as well what your parents taught you. So the uh, senior ladies, we called them mother. So to me, she's Mother Emma. <laughs> so you all remember that. No, that's really, that's endearment. I'm, I'm serious. That, that really is endearment. Uh, but I, I want to tell you what I call pastor. Uh, I'll just leave that for another occasion. But he's a, wonder, he's a wonderful man. She's a wonderful woman. And as he said, we have been together for 31 years. And, and they've been 31 good years. Um, life is a journey, a journey as you have different aspects to it. It's not always the peak. It's not always the valley. And usually it's uh, somewhere most of the time in between the two. But thank God for those moments um, that he gives us where we do experience peaks together. And then we're able, to, by the grace of God, to walk through the valleys together and make it through there. Amen. Um, I started yesterday by talking about one of the major themes that the Lord uh, has given me for the year. And that was the city. Talking about the city. The uh, other one was dealing with the life of Abraham and considering uh, his journey, how that in so many ways it should remind each of us of our journey from the call all the way into uh, finality when his journey completes. You know, oftentimes uh, people will indicate that there are different things that are the highlight of their life. Um, for him, it was very simple and is, and is fairly contrary to what you see in modern ministry. I mean, you know, oftentimes we believe the highlight is when we get the size church that we think that we ought to have. We have the amount of influence in maybe a state or a country or nations the way that we think that we should. And we figure that we have reached the apex of ministry. But for Abraham, the greatest day in his life was when he could turn everything that he had over to his son Isaac, his only son. And in a sense, he somewhat faded uh, after that into what you would say semi-retirement until he transitioned. Um, but how often do you hear men say, the greatest day in my life it's when I can turn what I've been doing over to my son so that it goes further and into another generation. How often do you hear people say that? 
You don't hear people say that in the modern world. It's because we, in a sense, have not understood generational transfer. Now, Jesus made that statement. He said to those that he was training, he said these things and greater things shall you do. You see, that's always the mindset of a father is that his son will exceed what he's done. Amen. And, and I think that we're, we're beginning to birth that again in true fathering. Uh, it's, it's not about how many people we can gather under us and, uh, you know, just to have a, a bragging chip whenever we come to conference or a convention because I'm often asked, how many sons do you have? I said, why does that matter? How many churches are you covering? I said, why does that matter? <laughs> Those things are really not that important. I said, but this is what I do. I said, I simply receive those that God has given me because that is the pattern that Jesus established for us. He received those that the Father gave him. I said, and if that's only one, then God knew that my ability to serve effectively in that dynamic would be only one. And the reward is equal because of faithfulness as it would be if you had a thousand to cover and you were faithful to do that. So are, are, we, are we communicating together here this morning? So there's some things that I want to share about the city and studying Abraham's life. It was an eye-opener for me. I, I try to look at details. Um, why did he have to come into the land at a place called Shechem? Why couldn't he have come in someplace else? But when you unfold Shechem, then it's clear why he had to come in there. And, and then just his journeys through the land and his different encampments and how that in his journeys, what we see is the process of God unfolding in his life and God developing him to bring him to a point to where he really could be a faithful father. Um, we, see this, we see in this story, not any of the details are hidden. They're all there. We see when he messed up. We see when he lied. We see when he took his, excuse me for a minute, ladies, his wife's advice, and he produced, and he produced Ishmael. Oh, yeah. It's all there. It's all right there. And, and that's the amazing thing about God is that he doesn't hide any of the details of the story. As Paul said, we are to learn. These things are history markers so that we can learn. And therefore, we will not, again, repeat the same errors, hopefully. <laughs> and that's why I say, hopefully. If we learn, though, we will not. And so it was a beautiful study uh, looking at his life. Uh, remember I said that he was delivered from his country, from his kinfolk, and from his father's house. And so I state it this way. He's delivered from his first citizenship, that's your country, his nationality, his country. He's delivered from his culture. We know that that specifically was in Ur of the Chaldees and all that was happening in that region and the confusion that it ultimately produced in a place called Babylon. 
And he was delivered from, in a sense, being pigeonholed by his color. Because in your father's house, that's where you get your biological DNA. And that is going to indicate the pigmentation that you have. That's clear my ancestors, some of them were from Africa. And some of them were from Europe. And through a blood test, I found out that some of them were from the Middle East. <laughs> Amazing. I said, Lord, I didn't know biologically I was so mixed up. <laughs> but here I am. Here I am. Now, the least obvious thing about you is your earth suit. That's the least obvious thing about you. Because if you ever put this tabernacle off, remember what Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there is then a house from the heavens that has already been determined for you. And so, as I would say, the least obvious thing about you is what people think is the most obvious thing. But if your spirit separates from this, this tabernacle, you will still exist Hallelujah. And in a sense, you could consider it a graduation into a higher realm of existence. Amen? And so all of these things uh, just have been working afresh uh, through my spirit. I, I began our, our conversation together yesterday by looking at this thought of the city from its beginning days in the book of Genesis, and how that the first city builder was Nimrod. And he built this city because he was carrying an orphan spirit, and primarily it was for protection. And as the word city initially unfolds uh, at first, it is simply a place of protection. So you had walls. Walls would keep people in. It would keep people out. But the walls were there for the purpose of preventing just invasions anytime people would choose to invade. Um, as far as the size of cities, we know initially they were not that large, but they were cities. They were fortified settlements, if you will. And then when you come into the, to study it from the Greek position, a city, the word polis, is where you began to develop the political idea connected with the word city. For instance, as a citizen, uh, we are referred to as polites, that is a citizen of a particular place. Our name has been enrolled there. Now, <laughs> I just got my tax bill and I was reminded that I was a citizen of Cape Coral. Because <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can't, <laughs> I got to pay taxes. And, and so, uh, but, but with the enrollment there, there were also not only certain responsibilities, but certain privileges as well. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at this idea of the city um, from a first century perspective. And then I want to backtrack a bit and look at how God began to deal with Israel when they would enter into the land and they would begin to take cities. They would capture cities. They were already well-developed 
urban centers there when they came into the land. So let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24. And I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. All right. Got a chance to go downtown yesterday. And uh, Clark, he's, a, he's just a tremendous guy. Uh, I, I appreciate him stopping me where he stopped me. I had, I had to get my marriage go meeting shoes. For those of you who don't know, I'm getting married again. Yeah. And so, uh, so I was very thankful for that. Um, but here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24, it says, No, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, he's doing a contrast here, a contrast. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Mount Sinai in the wilderness that the children of Israel, when they had come out of Egypt, they came to that mount. There they encountered God. They encountered him in a way uh, that I don't know they could have anticipated because fear overwhelmed them in that meeting. And they were ready to withdraw. They said, Moses, you go up. You meet with God for us. And whatever God tells you, that's what we will do. And a significant thing happened in that statement. Because what God was looking for, really, in that encounter, was to let them know, I'm your father. I'm not Pharaoh. I'm not your tyrant. I'm your father. And this is what my heart is like. The Bible tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when God is speaking, giving forth his sayings, he's telling them, this is what I'm like. And they could not endure the voice, if you will. And because of the presence of God in the environment of man, you had all kinds of things going off. There were earthquakes, thunderings, voices. Moses said it was so incredible that even for a moment, I was in fear. That's how incredible, how awesome it was. Can you imagine, just with me for a moment, that the voice of God would come into this environment that we're in right now? How do you think we'd react or maybe respond to that? Do you think we go out telling everybody, oh, it was glorious, man. It was incredible. That would be after the fact. <laughs> after we got over how incredible <laughs> this really was. And most of us probably would want to fall on our faces without anybody pushing us backwards. We'd probably want to fall on our faces before him because of how incredible his presence really is. And so, you know, I don't slam the children of Israel about their human response to his voice. I simply realized that they had encountered at that moment more than they expected. And the only way they knew how to react was the way that they reacted when, or they were required to react when they came into the presence of Pharaoh. And that is, they could not look him in the face. They had to hold their head down. And then they could not turn their back to him when they were leaving. They had to back out. And this is exactly how they're behaving that day. 
on Mount Sinai when they had been invited by God to come. Now, come on. If he invites you to come, the intent is not to destroy you. It's really to communicate with you and to let you know that you've come into something new. This is not the same old deal repeating itself, but you've actually come into a new realm here. And the laws that's going to function in this realm, they are totally different than anything you had before. So in our language, New Testament language, what that is going to require is the renewing of the mind. You can't think like slaves anymore. So you've got to have a better information system in order to ship you. Now, many of us right now who've been in God a number of years, we're going through that. There's a shifting that's going on. And either we're shifting or you can prepare for somebody to sing over you. Now, I know that got pretty serious for a moment, but, but that's really the deal. And oftentimes, uh, I had the privilege this morning of listening a little bit to a, a time, a memorial of the man of God that we were uh, associated with back in the 1960s. And it was when the deliverance movement was high. And one of the churches, this man of God's been gone since 1975. And prior to his leaving, I'll never forget the Lord speaking to me. He said, deliverance as you know it is over. And that shocked me because I thought it was going to be going on forever because, you know, you preach from Luke 4 going back to Isaiah 61 that part of the ministry, the Jubilee ministry, is to preach deliverance to the captives. And I didn't realize God was going to redefine deliverance for me. But first, he had to get me ready for the shift. And so that man of God died in April of 1975. And I was listening to the group who were memorializing him this morning. And 75 is what, 42 years ago? They're still in the same spot. They haven't moved in 42 years. And so if you don't move with each of the waves of God, what you have the capability of becoming is the persecutor to the next thing God is doing. And that's why I say we who have been at this for a while. Now, because I'm looking at people, and I'm, and I'm not trying to speak that you're chronologically challenged or anything, but, I, but I'm looking at people that's been at this for a while, including myself every time I look in the mirror. You see, when I started, I had no gray in my mustache. Now I try to hide as much of the gray as I possibly can. I thought I'd grow a beard. It was so gray. I said, no, 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 no. A gray, bald-headed man doesn't look good. <laughs> but all it indicates is I've been around for a while. That's all it indicates. I've been around for a while. And, and I don't want to get, in a sense, so tight so connected with what used to be that I can't connect with what is. 
And you know, truthfully, that was their struggle, Israel. There was always someone volunteering. You didn't have to draft them. Volunteering. I'll be your leader. I'll take you back to Egypt. That was going on over and over and over and over. And yet, it was the determination of God because of his promise to the fathers that he would take the nation into the land of promise. And so you've got to get ready to live in a place that you've never lived in before. The rules of operation are different. So the wilderness really was for the purpose of birthing a new mindset in them. It really was not about seeing how many of them could die. It really wasn't about that. It was never intended to be a tomb necessarily. It was supposed to be a womb. God said, this is what I wanted to teach you. He said, there were several things. Number one, I wanted you to learn that you cannot live by bread alone. He said, I carried you through this wilderness to humble you. Because the only way that you can function fully in a dominion capacity is that you must do it out of humility. That's why Jesus stooped very low. He was a man of humility. He said, I had to take you through that training. Everybody say training. You see, you have to be trained to reign. Trained. And in, and in that, you, many of you have been in military. We are honoring our military you know, this weekend. But many of you, if you, if some of you, if you've been in military, you know what I'm talking about. The first thing when you get in there, they're going to deconstruct the way you think. That's number one. Because you'll never be able to fit into a corporate capacity with an individual mindset. So what they do is they tear you down and then they rebuild you. And when graduation time comes, you're ready to fit into something larger than yourself. Are you with me? God trains the same way. Where do you think they got that plan from? He trains the same way. We lose our suke, our soul life, in order to find his life. And his life is a shared life. That's why when you hear metaphors describing us together, it's things like we are a household of faith. Hallelujah. We are a workmanship created by Christ for good works. It's a beautiful word, workmanship, poema. It's like we are a poem constructed by God. And each of us contribute a line to that. And thank God we don't have to rhyme. Then he calls us something like a temple. You can't build a temple out of one stone. You've got to have living stones. As Peter said, lively stones. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When you look at us as a body, body doesn't consist of one member. It's many. And you look at all the metaphors and how that when you expand them, it usually speaks to not just a few people or one person, 
but it speaks to many people coming together and learning to live together. So as a city, because when God talks about city, he's not just talking about infrastructure. He's talking about people. What makes Detroit Detroit? What makes Cape Coral where I live? Cape Coral. It's the people. Whether you're talking hamlet, village, town, or city, is the people. What makes New York New York? It's the people. So why would we think any differently about the city of God? Although much of what you're looking at is sign language. It was signified to John. And in sign language, you've got lots of metaphors describing the experience of being the city. Why do you think every entrance, every gate is a pearl? What is God telling us? Really? How I many of you know how a pearl, an authentic pearl forms? Hmm. Usually it in an oyster, correct? A mullock. And how does it begin? Grain of sand. Tell somebody. Irritation. Did you ever think your irritations would become pearls? <laughs> but you see, within that oyster, is what is essential to turn something negative into a positive. And it's a fluid that is secreted to surround the grain of sand and to transform it into a pearl. Now what we have, what we have been given, is that the love of God has been shed abroad, poured out into all of us through the Holy Ghost. And as that love can surround every irritation and turn it from an irritant to a pearl. And isn't it amazing that it's right at the place that you call a gate or an entrance? Paul said on one occasion, he said, you know, there, there, there's a wonderful entry that has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. And usually they're right there at the gate. Now let me give you this in a practical way. How many of you remember when you were born again? How many of you remember when you were born? You really remember when you were born again. Uh, and so I saw a few hands. So the rest of you don't remember when you were born again. All you know is that you were born again. <laughs> okay. Well, don't you realize that there is an irritation right there to dissuade you? That nothing happened? That voice was right there. Nothing happened. Nothing happened in your life. Wait until tomorrow. You'll see. But as you developed a desire for the milk of the word, isn't it interesting how that voice stopped? It was no longer there to challenge whether anything really happened in your life or not. Same thing happened when you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That same adversarial voice was right there. That same voice was right there in baptism. This is what it said. Nothing happened to your heart. You didn't get circumcised. Talk to me. 
Yeah. And so as these things, as you hear that voice, what you've got to learn to do is ignore that voice and make sure you tap in the truth. Because this is what the truth said. Something did happen. And as you continue, let's say the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as you continue to speak in language, as the Holy Spirit gives you utterance, what happened to that voice? What you will find is that every time it fades and it finally goes away. Because you keep walking in truth. And truth dispels the lie. And so with, with each experience there, and so there, you know, there are a number of things that you could talk about there. But what I'm delighted about is that things that I thought 50 years ago was impossible, they've been possible. And some of them since the first century. Some of them since the first century. You see, because when he, when he said, you've come to Mount Zion, this is what you've come to. The tense of the verb is perfect. That means that it happened, it's permanent, and it's ongoing. He said, you've come. Now, in talking to the Hebrews here, you've got to remember what he's dealing with. It's people who are struggling to make the transition. And there are all kinds of forces that say it. it's better to stay in the old than it is to connect with this new covenant. And so the writer says, let's settle some of these issues that they're placing out there. Is Christ greater than Moses? Is Christ greater than Abraham? Is the rest that he's bringing us into greater than the rest that was presented in the Old Testament? Is the temple that he's building right now out of you greater than that temple that had the ability to be raised, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground. Is Christ greater than angels? Is he as the firstborn? Does he fulfill everything that God has as a requirement for firstborn? Is the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek greater than the Aaronic priesthood, which, by the way, came to an end when the temple came to an end? Are you with me here? Is all is these contrasts, is his sacrifice, is his blood greater than the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of rams? Yeah, he's asked, see, he's, he's presenting the contrast here, and he said, if you go back to that, you go back to something inferior. But if you go on, you enter into something that is better. So thus, the key word in the book of Hebrews is better. Everything is better. The tabernacle. Yeah, the tabernacle. Basically, as a group, they only knew the outer court, and then a few of them knew the holy place. Only one of them knew the most holy place. But this is the invitation to us in Hebrews chapter 10, that we're to enter in by a new and living way. In other words, something has been freshly opened up and inaugurated, and now it is legal. 
You don't have to worry about staying out anymore. It's open. Hallelujah. Talks about the faith worthies, Hebrews 11. Then Hebrews 12, he talks about Jesus. He didn't say a single one of them finished. They died in the faith with a good report. But Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He ran the race. He completed the race. Glory to God. And now he's ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's taken the position of a firstborn one. And from there he rules. Amen. As the one who will always reign upon the throne of David. That's him. The contrast is powerful. And so he says, the two greatest mountains and the experiences of those mountains in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, one is celebratory, the other <laughs> puts fear in your heart. He said, and that's what you have not come to. Are you with me here? He said, you have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the city of the living God. Most of my theology in the early years before the baptism of the Holy Ghost <laughs> was cut on the teeth of this. Someday you're going to get there, buddy. Someday, someday you're going to get there. And so when life was miserable, it was good to sing those songs about, someday we're going to get there. You felt better. And then when you read this, you have come to the city of the living God. Look at how he describes the city. The heavenly Jerusalem simply indicating that there is a Jerusalem that is earthly. And Paul and Galatians speak to us about this matter. It contrasts the covenants. He likened one, come on, the mothers connected to those covenants, Agar to one, Sarah to the other. He said, you've come to thou to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. Time doesn't permit me to deal fully with this, but when you study in Galatians what Paul said, the law came by the disposition. That's a military term. It's an orderly term. It means that things were arranged carefully. It wasn't just haphazardly thrown together and then it happened. No, it's, a, it's an orderly term. And he said it came by the disposition of angels, and we know that angels are many times flames of fire sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. Now what he's alluding to here is in the Old Testament there's something called the Shalia principle. How many of you are familiar with that? The concept Shalia means that this is the person that is sent to fully embody and represent another. The verb that was used is the word Shalak. And from Shalak you have Shalia. Just like in the New Testament the, the verb that would be likened to that, synonymous to that, is apostello. And the apostle is a sent one. Shalia 
is a sent one. The greatest picture of this is Genesis 24. When Abraham sent Eliezer to receive a wife for his son, you recall the story? Everybody, you recall the story? Remember what he told him to do first before he sent him? He said, place your hand under my thigh. That was the picture of taking an oath. The word oath means to seven times yourself. In other words, you speak in finality about this matter. There's nothing else to add to it. That's why whenever you see God establishing an oath, he seven times himself. And he said, there's nothing further to say about this matter. It's complete. And so Abraham did that, and then he sent Eliezer. Now notice, he sent him. He didn't send him empty-handed. He had camels. Camels had all kinds of gettings on it. Tell somebody the camels are still coming. Tell them. Camels are still coming. Had all kinds of gettings on the camels. And when he got to the place that he should get to in order to receive a wife for Isaac, when they wanted him basically to receive hospitality and basically to, to just to rest himself for a moment, he said, no, I'm not going to do that until I tell you about my errand. And that's what apostles, shalias are. They're Aaron bearers. That word Aaron is the word dabar, which simply means I have a word that I must deliver. A word that I must deliver. And I won't rest until I deliver that word. So what he becomes at that moment when he goes forth in Abraham's name is in reality he becomes Abraham. It's just like what we call the power of attorney. In the early days of our country, it was called plenipotentiary. Ben Franklin was sent to Europe as the plenipotentiary of this country. Therefore, whatever he said, it was the country saying. Whatever he did, it was the country doing. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. So whatever an apostle says, it's like the sender who sent him is saying it. Whatever he does is the sender that's doing it. That's why you don't have many true apostles. So when Eliezer spoke, Abraham was speaking. When, Ab when Eliezer acted, it was Abraham that was acting. Because the Shalia is the one that sends him. The apostle, prophet, is the one that sends them. Jesus said, my father, just as my father has sent me, now so send I you. Jesus did not hesitate saying, my father and I one. I'm the full display of the father. You know what they didn't have to hesitate in saying? We're the full display of Jesus who sent us. Because no man, if his authority is real, sends himself. If his authority is real. And so you have this Shalia principle at work there. And, and, as, and, as, you, and as you look at this 
that day on the mount. Paul said it was by the disposition of angels. It's the same Shalia principle. It's called the angel of the Lord. Now, Paul equally later, now let's, let's explain this. When, you remember when Paul said, no man, no flesh of man has ever seen God at any time. You remember reading that? Now, I know all of you Bible students, you remember reading. When I first read that, I said, how can this be? Because in the Old Testament, it said that different ones saw God. And then that was when God awakened me to the Shalia principle. That when that representation comes, that's you. So let's say Chuck maybe receives an invitation, Pastor Chuck, receives an invitation. Let's say to go into um, Kenya. Because I know he's been there, so you have been there, right? Okay, good. I know he's been there. So he can't go. He says, I won't come, but I'll send you Clark. And this is what Clark is going to do. Remind you of all of my ways in Christ. That's what Paul said. I can't come, but I'll send you Timothy. And he'll remind you of all of my ways in Christ, my mannerisms, my doctrine. He'll be able to share with you my sufferings, my afflictions, everything. He said he will remind you of that because what he was really saying was Timothy is who I am. It's the Shalia principle. Whoever you send, <laughs> whoever you lay your hands on and send, make sure that they qualify to be you. Isn't that what God does? Why do you think the training is so intense? Because when you go forth as a plenipotentiary, that means you're the full embodiment of God's potential. What is God's potential? Say, so with God, all things are possible. And if you can't believe, you see, at first he's having this conversation with these men. If you can't believe, then all things are possible. Hallelujah. And so when you come to this gathering and you have this presence there, he said it's a joyful gathering. It's not a fearful gathering. He said you've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. We know the connection there. The Lord delivered the firstborn ones out of Egypt. That's what the story was all about. Only the firstborn was not single. It was corporate. God said, Israel, he, he said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Later when Hosea is writing about this, he said, God delivered his son out of Egypt, his firstborn son. And now he tells us, you're all firstborn ones. Now what firstborn speaks to is the fact you are unique in your birth, in your existence. 
there will never exist you on earth again. And that in itself makes you a first and an only. Isn't that wonderful? Now you don't have to copy anybody else. <laughs> you don't have to imitate anybody other than Christ. Because he's the firstborn among, or that, that preposition would be as well, in many brothers. Firstborn, firstborn. So the firstborn spirit is in us. You look at the nature of God calling firstborns is when death is rampant and pervasive in a society, and it's out of that kind of environment, God calls forth a firstborn company. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, somebody say, thank you, Lord. He said, your firstborn ones whose names are written in heaven. In other words, you're enrolled. What did Jesus tell them to be happy about when they were so enamored about power? When you're, when you're enamored about power, basically that's a juvenile mentality. And you need to get delivered from a jejune condition. What I'm talking about here is when teenagers, have you, have you ever noticed uh, a teenager trying his dad's car out for the first time? I mean, usually do they think, I think I'm going to see how slow this car goes. <laughs> no, there's something, come on, in their teenage DNA that says, let's put the pedal to the metal and let's test this out. Not understanding that power can either bless you or hurt you. And thank God many times they get ministered to by the highway pastor before he gets the opportunity to hurt them. <laughs> uh, he's out there saving some souls, isn't he? <laughs> and so were the apostles when Jesus sent them out, Matthew 10, Luke 10. Remember what they come back saying? Oh, Jesus. Man, this thing really works. Even the devils were subject to us in your name. And he immediately had to administer a correction. It wasn't that he didn't know the devils <laughs> would not be subject to him in them in, as they used his name. He clearly understood that. But he didn't want them to get caught up there. Because what you get caught up in at that point is the raw display of power. And what you do not get yet is that the purpose of power is to serve others more effectively. And it's not a bragging chain. So he said what you must be really excited about is you're enrolled. See, enrollment speaks of citizenship. So when he tells us here, our names are written in heaven, it's citizenship. That's our true citizenship. He said, you have come to God himself. Brethren, when, when I look at this statement, and I go back to Exodus 19, where the Lord said to the children of Israel, he said, I brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings. The whole objective, if you think about that statement, I brought you to myself. It's indicating that man had strayed away, like the young prodigal that had strayed away. 
And what he was living was an orphan experience. And God said, what I've done is brought you to myself. Here in Hebrews 12, it says, you've come to God himself. First Peter, I believe, 3.18 says, Jesus came, he suffered Christ himself in order to bring us to God. The issue never was to carry us to heaven. It was to get us back to God. We were in Adam, his decision, disconnected from God. And now Christ has reconnected us, plugged us back in to God. Hallelujah. That's why we, 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 we are not looking for a house somewhere. We are the house. Thank you, Lord. Come on, God's not alienated from us anymore. We're not alienated from him anymore. We're connected again, joined together again, one with him, with our Father, brought back to God. What a wonderful thing to know that I have a Father. You know, even in, in Isaiah, when there, there were times there in, in the latter chapters where Israel said, we know that we're a mess, but we have a Father. We know we've blown it, but we have a Father. They never lost in one sense that that they should have held on to. We have a father. We live in a generation so filled with orphans. People are searching for fathers. Even in the church, they're searching for famous fathers. Because so many have been struck by deadly daddies. So they figure if I can connect to the right person, Things will change. No, the thing that will change is exactly what happened when, when in John 14 when, it, when, the, when those disciples were struggling with that orphan spirit trying to overtake them because Jesus said, I'm leaving temporarily, but I'm going to come to you again. You study John chapter 14 and consistently you will see Father, 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 he wanted them to be reminded of the fact, I came to reconnect you with the Father. And even if physically I am not present, the Father is still here. That's the greatest gift I believe that we can give our sons and daughters that we're training, is to make sure they're not so wrapped and wound in us that they fail to connect with their heavenly Father. You will always have your Father because Christ himself suffered. He died in order to bring us back to God. And here he says, this is the bigger picture that you come to. You come to God himself. Who is the judge over all things. You haven't come into a situation where you're going to be judged based on the flesh, based on the outward appearance. <laughs> How many times are we judged based on outward appearance? Do you, figure, do you realize the whole cosmetic industry would fall apart if we would get delivered here? <laughs> now, I know some of you are probably saying, now, brother, 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 brother. <laughs> But seriously, think about it. There are images that are propped up in the cosmos. 
and to try to get everybody to conform to their image. And thus billions of dollars are extracted out of people to try to conform to an image that's not even true. What does that mean? Come on, folks. What determines whether something is beautiful or not? It's how you look at it. Come on, everybody isn't going to be looking like a Coca-Cola bottle. I mean, you know, after you have a child or two, things change. Usually there's more of you to love. And then a child of three, things change. It's all in perspective. And so we can't allow ourselves to be judged by a standard that is ungodly. And neither should we be judging by a standard that is ungodly. Because God doesn't judge on the basis of the appearance, but it's the heart. And I'm a firm believer that no person fully knows any other person's heart. You may have discernment, but there's some things that are sovereign between God and that person. And you won't talk with any other person about it other than that person. You have come to the spirits of righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. What an amazing statement. You have come to Jesus who mediates the new covenant between God and people. Moses mediated the old between God and people. You come to the sprinkled blood. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lamb in the New Testament. You see, he's giving all these contrasts here. And this blood speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. If we would take the time to study all of what we have already come to, I don't think we'd be so tied up in a future mentality of things. Because we began to lock into what is available now. Now, when you go into Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4, John said, and, and, he, and he consistently said this, and I'm reading again from the New Living Translation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. There was a great change that took place. He said, and the sea was also gone. Isaiah described the sea as the hearts of men. They're like a troubled sea. See, he was gone. He said, and I saw the holy city. Now, do you think all of a sudden John is seeing something different than what's described here in Revelation 12? Oh, excuse me, Hebrews 12. Well, let's see. Let's see about the details. He said, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, okay? In Hebrews 12, it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. He said it was coming down from God out of heaven. So you see that heavenly characteristic there. 
like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne. We know that John's investigations in the spirit begins in Revelation 4, where he receives an invitation to come up hither. And then when he's there in the spirit, he said, I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. He said, and this is the first thing I thought, I saw, excuse me, was a throne. And the one that sat on the throne. And in his concluding vision here, he's still seeing this same thing. Because when you study 21 and 22, 22, out of the throne flows a river. There's a light that flows out of the throne. Hallelujah. He said, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. God is among his people. He didn't say the people is among God. Because the focus has always been God coming to his people. From the beginning, the first Adam, God would come in the cool of the day to be with him. Let them make me a tabernacle in order that I may dwell in the midst of them. When the temple was built, the house is not for man. The house is for God. Although the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. It has always been God coming to man. And so here, he establishes at the end here the city. So we can see here conclusively that the intent of God in building a city of people is so that he can live in every one of them. He said, God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The old regime is gone. And there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. Today when I was thinking about my transition, why? I thought about this passage. And I knew I was going to preach this passage. And I said, there's that in the economy of God where this regime that still have some glimpses Every bit of it will be wiped out. That we have to hold on to as a vision. Regardless of how many loved ones may transition. And I don't denigrate that in any way. That's holy unto God. He said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his son. Are you hearing me here? But what I further hold on to is this truth. And the day comes right here on earth where the former regime no longer has an existence. Hallelujah. Don't ever compromise that. I know people will try to bully you, get you away from it. They tried it with me. They said, what are you going to say now? 
I said, this is what I'm going to say. Because truth is not predicated upon one or two individuals. Truth is based on one thing. Did he say it? That's all that matters. And if he said it, we can say it behind him. Where's that little kid at? She said, you're the preacher that talks loud. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> She's not here. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about excited. This is the thing to get excited about. You know, generally, if, if it's something materialistic, some acquisition, I mean, you know, if... If somebody come in and said to you, thus saith the Lord, tomorrow by this time, a billion dollars is going to be in your bank account. Who could beat you shouting and dancing? I mean, even if you had no shout and no dance in you, you'd figure out one. Huh? Because now suddenly you're in a whole different denomination. Money is called denomination. But here, God is telling us, listen, I've got something that's available to you. And it's going to cancel everything the regime of Adam left even in residue upon the face of the earth. Beware. You don't have to worry about crying. Because there will be no more death, sorrow, pain. He said, all these things are gone forever. This is the potential of this city that we have been invited by God himself to be a part of. Who wouldn't want to be part of a city like this? Let me put it in terms that we can relate to. You won't find any gangs there. There will be no drug-infested houses there. Won't be any crack pipes there. You won't have to worry about any prostitution Talk to me, church. You won't have to worry about 2% of people owning 98% wealth. Not there. Come on, you won't have to worry about terms like social stratification, where you got the king and then you got Rahab the harlot at the bottom of the pile. Talk to me. It's not going to be there. Uh-uh. No, tell somebody, this thing is changing, and it's changing right now. Now, I want to give you one other point before I close out this morning. And maybe sometimes Chuck will invite me back to finish up some more of this. But our first view of this, them coming into the land, and I think we need to strike that for just a minute. Now Moses, his ministry is completed. He's gotten them out of Egypt. He's, connect, he's kept them connected to God. And I'm sure at times he felt worn out. 
we had a, one of the little children years ago. Uh, we used to sing the song, He is Exalted, the King is Exalted on High. Remember that song? And she got up and she started singing, He is Exalted, the King is Exalted. <laughs> As a baby, as a probably with our group at times, he might be a little exhausted. <laughs> you think Moses ever felt exhausted? <laughs> sure he did. Sure he did. You know, when you're leading conservatively a couple of million people, and you're having to be the one that bears all of them in prayer, and you know you just can't concentrate on your agenda. But your concentration has got to be to keep them alive. Because God is, you know, from time to time saying, hey, if you'll get out of the way, I'll just kill every one of them. I'll kill every one of them and raise up a nation out of you that's mightier than they are. And if he had have had the least bit of ambition in him, he probably would have looked at God, looked at them, and think about, yeah, they've been giving me a hard time too, God. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll get out of the way and let you just go ahead and take care of them. No, but we see that he was such a powerful intercessor. He had the kind of heart that was needed as a shepherd. He even wrote about himself in Numbers, and he said, the man Moses is the meekest man in all the earth. You do remember Moses did write Numbers. And to say that about yourself, I mean, you know, it would be like you going on Facebook saying, whatever your name is, the meekest person in all the earth. How many rebukes and rebuttals do you think you would get from that? Uh, but there it is. It's left for us. And as you read and study Moses, you can understand why that statement would be made. So he's finished. His assignment is finished. Now it's time for a change. God doesn't choose either one of his sons to follow him up in ministry because the grace pool that's got to be drawn from now requires a different kind of anointing to lead the people because his was to get them out and the next one is to get them in and to get them inherited. Listen carefully. Not just to get them in, but to get all of the tribes, the families, everybody, to get them into their inheritance. And then we read later in the book of Joshua, it was after they received their inheritance, then he received his inheritance. That's a real leader. That's a real leader. I've heard men say, I'm going to get mine right now while I can, and, and they don't care what the people get anything about. That's not a leader. That's a pimp. So Joshua, he leads the people in. But he had to arise. He had to do something that he had never done before. If they were going to embrace this next thing from God. This decision had to be firm. It had to be intentional. And you couldn't look back saying, did I make the right decision?
some ways, this is where I personally am right now. Either you heard from God or you didn't. Now, the proof will come later. Now, the ministry of Joshua didn't last 40 years. It was only 30. And when you look at the book of Judges, you'll find practically everything in the pre-instruction phase that God gave them, the pre-healing days, they were just about violating every one of them. Now, what I equally saw in them is that they were so engaged in warfare, they did not train the next generation for leadership. Because even when you come into Judges chapter 2, now Joshua, you know, is from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was the second son of Joseph. So he's really a descendant of Joseph. Now what you find there in that grace pool is a marketplace ability, a marketplace leadership ability. And that's what's needed when you're going in to possess new territory and having to establish and raise up a God kind of economy. You need that. You need that grace pool. You just don't just simply need somebody that can keep you connected to the sanctuary. You need somebody who can teach you how to engage the markets as well. And we know that was in Joseph. And we know that was there from what he did in Egypt. It's in Joshua's DNA. And I believe that that's part of the reason why he was chosen, along with the fact he submitted himself to Moses for those 40 years. And Moses trained him. He was a son to Moses. And so God chooses Joshua and Caleb. We know that Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. Now, you'll see where this is going in a moment. Because in the book of Judges, when it's time to go up to battle again, it says, who are we going to send? Who's to go up first? Remember what it said? Send Judah first. You see, things are lining up because we're leading to the kingdom. Because it was only through the lineage of Judah that kings were to come into the nation. Now, we know the first king that was selected was not from the tribe of Judah. It was from the tribe of Benjamin. Why was that? Because they rose up and said, we want us a king like everybody else, who will go out before us and come in. God said, okay, you want a king? Then I'll give you a king. But it's not going to be from the right lineage. So this is what your king's going to do. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your land. He has a taking nature. That's your king because your king is just like you. Whoa. Whoa. When you think about it, when we start demanding leadership rather than staying open to God, God says, okay, that's what you want. I'll give you what you want. And he let their king rule for 40 years. And then he said, now, I'm going to give you my king. And my king is not going to be from Benjamin. My king is going to be from the prophetic line I said he would come through, Judah. So David was raised up to be a presentation of God's heart. Was he perfect in his humanity? No, 
But he was a presentation of God's heart. He was a representative, if you will. And so when God says send Judah first in the book of Judges, what he was leading to was this transition that would take place in 1 Samuel where we see the account. Kings coming out of Judah. So when you have differences in anointing, different grace pools to draw from, is just simply saying until God gets to the desire that he's spoken about prophetically, there will be this transition that is interwoven within society. And you can't lock down in any one of them until you get the final one. You see, it's right back to what I was saying a moment ago. Until the old regime and every glimpse of it is fully gone off this earth, we cannot be satisfied. We can't be satisfied just feeling a little bit of anointing. Seeing a healing here and there. Talk to me here today. Until death and every expression of death, disease, sickness, poverty, pain, until it all has been eradicated off the face of the earth. 